Hi, just a little note before we get into this episode. In this episode, we're going to talk a lot about the relationship between writing and AI and editing and AI and art and AI and all kinds of AI. As writers and editors, we want to make it very clear that we stand with and support the members of the Writers Guild of America who are currently on strike to demand a sustainable living wage and to create rules around the use of AI in screenwriting. With that, Today's episode, we're going to be talking a lot about AI. We're going to talk about Chris's book, Systemic, which is all about AI. We're going to be talking about the existential threats to both writers and editors that AI seems to be posing, and what we think the role of a writer and artist will be in the era of AI, which, by the way, is right now. And then there's some questions about how to be a good person in a ubiquitous surveillance society where data is always available about everybody all the time. So sit back, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome once again to the No I in Writing podcast. My name is Chris Lodwig, and I am an independent author. And my name is Christy Schroyer, and I'm a book coach. And we're here to dispel the myth that being creative is anything but a team sport. For those of you who don't know, we're in Seattle, and the Kraken is playing, so I got to watch the Kraken play last night. I don't know anything about hockey. It's a crazy sport. It's like boxing, and ice skating, and soccer, all like happening at the same time. It's kind of nuts. I always thought that body checking somebody would feel kind of satisfying. They do that in indoor soccer. I've been body checked many times, and being body checked is actually kind of satisfying. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I can take it. Okay, I can take it. <laughs> the two Catholics sit in a room. <laughs> How much can you take? Well, no, there's that, which is like psychologically more troubling than what I was saying, which is, I don't think I can take a punch. And when I can, I'm like, oh, I can take a punch. Because it's not the Catholicism, it's the wussiness. Mm. that is inherent to me. I'm like, oh, and someone hit me really hard and I didn't cry. any rate, Christy, what do you want to talk about today? I want to talk a little bit about AI because uh, it's in the air. And we were running the other day and talking a little bit about AI between breathing heavily. We kind of hauled ass the other day. Yeah, I don't think we expected. I I think that your watch broke. That's what I think. No. You don't think so? No. My watch is bossy and reliable, much more so than I am. So we were talking about AI, and you recommended a book to me that talks a little bit about the relationship between humans and AI. Uh, and yes. some, I think I've heard of this book. And imagine some potential futures mm-hmm. and some potential maybe pitfalls. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering if you could recommend that book to our listeners and tell us a little bit about how AI functions in it. Okay. That was a very roundabout way of getting me to plug my book. So thank you for doing that. So Systemic was my first book. And so you want to know how the AI functions in it? I think what's interesting to me and kind of why I wanted to talk about this tonight is that it feels like one of the questions at the heart of Systemic is what happens to humans when so the AI takes over a lot of functions. Yes. But one of the really important functions that it takes over is art and creativity. Yeah. Especially well, music and books. And, um, and shows, like yeah. TV shows. Yeah, that's totally true. It's funny, that is one of the main themes of that book is what happens in the world when suddenly creativity has been outsourced to machines. It is remarkable to me how much of a distant future 
that was when I wrote that book. That was something like 100, 150 years in the future. Crazy distant future when this was going to be happening. And as it turns out, it's not it's, it's not at all. The, the thing that triggered me worrying about that book had to do with truth going away. You guys might remember this president that we had a while ago that was always going on about fake news and fake this and everything was a lie. And I'm like, huh. It's going to be really interesting when when there's no truth anymore. And so my first thing about that book is how are we ever going to have an arbiter of truth anymore? And so the AI and systemic was actually a benefit to society. It was like, it would be great to have something that would be an objective player in the world. And that was my sort of optimistic view of the world. But there was this sort of thing like if it's able to do that, it's also going to make things tailored to you and all that. And that's where all the creativity came in. All the music was made by the system, all the the literature, all the stuff was tailored to individual people. And I was thinking about what that does to loneliness. When you don't have a book that you can ever share with somebody where you're like, hey, I read this great book. You never say that to anybody because they would never get that book. They would get a slightly different book or an entirely different book because it's tailored to them. And so there's no communal sharing of art. And that was one of the main things. And also... The part of you that is a human that wants to express itself out into the world, that is a two-way conversation. And every artist wants to express themselves to the world, and every consumer of art wants to like be close to an artist and understand and feel that transference of information. And in that book, that wasn't happening anymore. It was one of the problems with the world was that there is no transference of empathy between human beings. And so that was kind of the, one of the main concerns of the book. And as it turns out, the AI was smart enough to pick up on that. And it was a problem it was concerned about as well. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about systemic and also just about AI in the context of thinking about creative collaboration, mm-hmm. because I didn't even think about the point that people couldn't share art that yeah. because art was tailored. But I was thinking about the fact that in systemic, you have in some ways kind of a perfectly tailored world that solves a lot of really big problems yep. that I would like to be solved. Yep. That was my optimistic side. Yeah. And <clears throat> so so you have that, but then people don't have as much of an opportunity to create or as much of an impetus to create because there's not a great way to share that mm-hmm. when things are being shared by AI. And also that creative collaborative process of yeah. making something with somebody also goes away. Yeah. And so I think I was just interested in that question of, can we be human without that creative part and without those relationships? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a concern I I have through both the books. And there's this whole idea of, one of the things I was thinking about when I wrote Systemic was the idea of struggle and how important struggle is to the human condition. And that's not to, you know, fetishize it or anything like that, like, suffering is good or anything like that. But I think it is an important aspect of our lives, even in minor ways. We talk about creative collaboration a lot, and that's a struggle. And it feels great when that resolves. There's a resolution that happens. And I think that's really important and good. And that's true of any struggle. There's like a a struggle, you overcome it, it resolves, and there's, there's some benefit to that. My friend HP and I were talking about AI and writing, and he was like, well, you can't just use AI because there's some value in struggling with the material. And I think that that's true. The thing that is 
terrifying to me as an artist, a writer, is if I live in a world where, as a consumer of media and art, everything is perfectly tailored to me. I don't care about the artist anymore. I don't need the artist. I need to be entertained or I need emotion. I need whatever those things are. And an artist does that imperfectly. In the process of struggling through the imperfect transference of information that an artist provides, you build empathy as a human being. You That's like, oh, okay, it's not the best book I've ever read because if everything was perfect, it would always be the best book you've ever read. But I get where he or she was going and I can struggle with that and I can feel it and I build empathy. But if everything is just given to you, you lose that empathy and you lose that transference of, of emotion and that psychic connection that you have with another human being. And I don't think as a consumer that's going to bother you as much as it will as an artist. Because then at that point you're screaming into the void and no one's listening to you. And that question of connection is really hard. And I think just to cycle back to something you were saying about creative collaboration being difficult, I do think it's hard to have relationships with other people. It can hurt. You can feel disappointed. You can feel vulnerable. You can feel anxious. Like all of those feelings are there, even in a collaboration that's working really well. Mm-hmm. And maybe especially in one where where two people... Well, you care. You care what the other person thinks. You care about their creative input. I think it is really scary to think about losing that connection between the artist and the person consuming the art, Mm. as well as the connection between people making art. Those are both their hard connections and their imperfect connections, but there's that beauty in the imperfection of them. Yeah, absolutely. And to the point of empathy and creativity. So I was using ChatGPT today to do something, and I found myself caring about it and saying something like, could you please do this for me? And I was like, why am I saying please and why am I being polite to this this thing? And I actually deleted that, not because I didn't want to be polite, because I'm like, well, I don't want to mess up its inputs by mm. doing something. I want to be as concise as possible when I'm working with this this application to get it to do the right thing. And I'm like, that's a weird thing. A, that I want to be nice, and B, that I decided not to be because it yeah. might mess things up. <laughs> yeah, that's really complicated. Yeah. Like, complicated. Well, it's, it's kind of like, this is a very imperfect analogy, but we have If a, I had a computer, it would nail that analogy. Chat GPT, give us a better analogy than whatever Christie's <laughs> about to... <laughs> cut her off mid-sentence. <laughs> Come up with something that's a better fit than what I'm going to say right now. So my imperfect analogy is this. I was thinking about... We have a robot vacuum, like a Roomba. Mm-hmm. And... Just thinking about how I respond to it and how well it's trained me. Mm-hmm. Like, if I'm having a hard time picking up the floor, I will turn on the Roomba and then run around and pick up the floor before it gets to me. And the amount that I have changed my own behavior to accommodate the Roomba is really kind of staggering. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I'm thinking, okay, I'm doing this with something that can't, well, it can speak, it can speak a little bit. Doesn't speak very much. Says the same things over and over. But I don't know how I'm going to respond to something I can speak to. Yeah. Because I do think there's a human impetus to speak to an AI like a human. That's how we speak to people. I'm more worried. You're right. I'm kind of worried when we start talking to people like they're AIs. So... Here are some things that are definitely in my book that are definitely real Mm -hmm. now. One is all this creation of art 
I, I challenge any one of you to go out to grab ChatGPT or one of the other large language models and ask it to do something ridiculous. And you will be staggered at what it does. The other day, I asked ChatGPT to write an instruction manual for a helicopter and it goes to 109 in Dr. Seuss language, which it then did. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to show that to a friend and I mistyped Seuss and I wrote Suisse. And it did it, but in French Swiss. And that... Wow. So, mm-hmm. which is amazing. So it does that. And art. The other day I was doing scenes from, from Systemic. I was trying to see if I could get Dali, which is a, an art AI, to do this. Because my, my friend Eva Moon, who wrote a book that has Pinocchio in the title and The End of the World, I think. Ah, oh, Pinocchio's Guide to the End of the World, I think is what it's called. And it looks really interesting. She was using AI to generate scenes from her book. So I'm going to try that because they look crazy good. They look weird, but they're good. And so I tried to do that. So that was in my book, and now that's there. There's all the self-driving cars, which I actually own one now, which is crazy. Four years ago when I was writing the book, they didn't exist. Yesterday, I saw something where they're working on an AI that uses, it looked like CAT scan imaging to read your thoughts and figure out what you're doing, which is definitely in systemic. Like, that's mm-hmm. a big thing. And it was even, it even looked like a Harding device. It was like a big, like, donut shaped. I think it was an MRI machine, but I'm like, things that were in that book that were crazy sci-fi are really not very crazy sci-fi. Like, I think that it was, Neil Stevenson, who said, I've stopped writing science fiction. I just write fiction because whatever weird thing I was writing about mm-hmm. happens now. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about the other day, I can write a book, any book now, where somebody will legitimately go to chat GPT and ask it a question and have that as a plot device. And it's not science fiction. No. Mind blown. Like that was a moment where I'm like, that whole book that I wrote, Systemic, a massive part of that book could be today. Mm-hmm. It's no longer 150 years in the future. Five years have gone by and it's now. Yeah. And that's really crazy. Yeah, that is absolutely true. One of the scary things is, is that when you wrote Systemic, there was a very hopeful view of AI. Yeah. Because it was an AI that had human interest and the interest mm-hmm. of life in the world in mind. Mm-hmm. And I think... I think it's Ted Chang. He said this beautifully, and so I'm going to mangle it, but just talked about the fact that our AI is built on capitalism mm-hmm. and the kind of extractive capitalism that the world is built on. And so what is AI serving? So it can extract and create, but it can extract and create things that are created from us and created in the service of the systems that we live. And so it's replicating something that is extractive of labor, of the earth, and it's not creating something new. It feels like it's creating new things because it's remixing things yeah. in such powerful ways. And yet... It, it is, in the true sense of the word, derivative. So a couple of thoughts on that. One, it occurred to me when I was having a serious existential crisis as a writer, like, what's my job as a writer? We talked about that a minute ago. What's my job as a writer going to be? Not my daughter's job as a writer. Mine in two years. Absolutely. Is anybody going to want to read anything I've ever written? Because the AIs will do it better. I was having that that moment. And I thought to myself, you know, the job of an artist 
in the future is going to be introducing mm. new colors and shapes and things like that that it can then use the abstract of to en- enhance its art. Coming up with new and interesting lines that, that go together in such a way that it finds it beneficial and can leverage that for its own uses. Like that's what the job of an artist is, is to get more feedstock into the AI. So that was a weird thought. And the the other one having to do with extractive stuff and how these things work. So in Systemic, one of the main characters is Erin. And Erin is an African-American woman. The first scene I thought of was her standing on a rock and overlooking a river. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. I'm going to try to get Dali to do this. And I said, you know, a young African-American woman with hiking gear on, standing in a valley on a boulder overlooking a river. And all the women looked pissed. And I'm like, well, that's weird. I'm like, why do they all look mad? I'm like, oh, it's because they're all African-American women. Because that's the media feed into that. And so I literally said, a joyful Mm African-American woman. And then it fixed it. But if I didn't do that, to your point about things being self-referential and derivative, it's like the art was... It's this weird feedback loop, and it was very strange. And I'm smart enough to know that that's what it's doing and could correct it, but... Yeah. You know, that's... I was like, oh, there's media bias in these things. I should correct for that in my Absolutely. in my statement that I'm using to generate the visuals. It's like, things got weird. I was talking to my friend Balbir Singh, and he and I were going for a walk and talking about AI. And I was like, this thing about AI that's so strange, and this must be what old people feel like. I was talking to our grandma a couple years ago, and she says, when I was a girl, there were mule carts in Seattle delivering coal. And her and I were looking at my Google Maps on my phone. And she's like, in my lifetime, I've gone from coal carts to people on the moon to you have an entire map of the world in your hand. And then she said, who's drawing that map? And I'm like, mm-hmm. nobody's drawing the map, mm-hmm. Grandma. And it was this really weird moment. And that was about five years ago, six years yeah. ago. I was talking to Balbir and I said, you know, it's so weird to watch these chat GPT and these large language model AIs because in December... Chat GPT had a 10% chance of passing the bar. Last month, it was a 90% chance. Mm. Like, if you think about the exponential explosion of computing power and the space over which it's reasoning, in that short amount of time, it is exponential. And to see that happen when I can count the number of times I've shaved during that time, Mm -hmm. like, it is staggering. I never would have believed this when I wrote Systemic, that it was going to be like this in my lifetime, let alone while I'm working on my third book. Yes, you have not yet finished the trilogy, and you're almost, you've almost finished the trilogy. It wasn't a dig at your writing speed. No, no, writing speed is usually pretty good. You're right, yeah. This has been a, book three is a long, is a schlong. Yeah. I feel like I've talked an awful lot. Are you concerned? Like, I was using it to edit the other day. Yeah. Sorry. I feel like I cheated on you. I know. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't want to do that editing anyway. I think it's interesting. I have thought a little bit about the difference. If I put on, like, my writer persona, I would say in some ways is more concerned than my editor persona. Yeah. And I think the reason (laughs) for that... And and I'm not saying that this is reasonable. It's just that, like, when I think about, like, existential threats to certain parts of identity, (laughs) I think 
And I think partially also just because of the writer's strike right now, where this is such a huge part of that, is the role of AI, because these large language models are so good at content generation. So I, I do think there's going to be roles for all artists, but I think those roles are going to be challenged. I think they're going to be much more difficult. Why do you think it would be more difficult? I think partially because it is exhausting to have something be able to create content that you do struggle mightily with. I think that's a really hard thing to grapple with. And I also think that perhaps, and this is going to be my optimistic reading Mm -hmm. of the world. I'm not sure this is what's going to happen, but thinking about what you were saying before about the creation of new things or cutting edge Mm -hmm. things, I think that the role of the artist is going to have to be to break down things like genre and expectations and find something new and something unexpected and thinking about large language models being inherently derivative. Mm -hmm. We all rely on a certain amount of derivation or derivativeness in our work because we learn from what came before and then we reproduce that thing. And I think that the thing that will be the advantage, but also the struggle of a human artist is that we perhaps still can do work that's not fully derivative, that we might be able to re-see or remake the world in a way that maybe these models can't imagine. But doing that, like getting outside of our frame of references and doing something new and unexpected or strange and not strange and kind of an, an uncanny AI way where we're remixing things, but but to think what can we do that's different and new, I think is an extremely hard challenge. And I think it it could be exhausting. It could be exciting. But I don't know, to come back to one of the things you were saying earlier, is will that be something that will be heard? Or is it going to feel like screaming into a void? So I don't think it's going to be physically more challenging or even mentally more challenging. I think it's going to be a lot easier. What I think is it's going to be psychologically more challenging. Mm-hmm. That That's what I was trying to decide if you're talking about difficulty. Because I got to tell you, it's really easy to outline an entire book with ChatGPT. It'll do it in like 20 seconds. Yeah. It does it accidentally sometimes. It's like, mm-hmm. here's a book idea for you. In fact, Essie Anderson is a an author who lives in France. She writes uh, space opera kind of stuff. She, she studies comets. She's quite charming. Mm. And she takes beautiful pictures of books online. So if anybody mm. ever wants to go see her, Essie Anderson, she's great. But at any rate, she did something with ChatGPT and it, it kind of hallucinated her fourth book in her series for her. So she said that the other day, and I'm like, yeah, it, it does that. And I, I did it on purpose. I had ChatGPT interview me once, and then I was like, you know, tell me what my third book is. And it did an okay job. Mm-hmm. It did it accidentally, I think, for Sarah. Essie Anderson is Sarah mm-hmm. Anderson. And it is just this weird thing to see it happen. It's like, oh, it just hallucinates, accidentally makes art. And it is derivative art. But to to my my point earlier and the point that you were just making, it's like, if I can say to ChatGPT or something like it, I really want to hear a story about a raccoon who fell in love with a hamster and they had to go on a trip through the desert. And, and it just does that. Like, do I ever need to go find a new book? Incidentally, I decided to do exactly that. I put that exact 
input into ChatGPT, and this is what it told me within three seconds. Once upon a time in a forest deep in the heart of America, there was a raccoon named Rocky. He lived a peaceful life, spending his days scavenging for food and exploring the forest. One day, while he was searching for berries, he stumbled upon a hamster named Hamzy. Rocky had never seen a hamster before and was immediately smitten. Before long, Rocky realized that he had fallen in love with Hamzy. He decided that he had to rescue her and take her on a journey through the desert to a place where they could be free. Etc. 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 Ending with... Finally, after many long weeks, Rocky and Hamzy arrived at their destination, a lush forest on the other side of the desert. They had made it through their incredible journey, and they were now free to live the rest of their lives together, exploring the world and experiencing all of its wonders. Now, back to our regular program. With ChatGPT and these other large language models, I can make books very fast. I'm sure I can. I haven't done it because I feel like there lies madness, but you can do it. I can write a great book very quickly. Okay, now everyone can do that. I now my, I'm making five books a year instead of one every three years. Do artisan books have any appeal to people? It's a, this is a free range book. It's an artisan book. You should pay money for it because a human made it. And that's part of the branding. Does anybody fucking care? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I wonder how satisfying those books will feel or whether there will be a moment where you feel a little bit lost or you miss something. I've read two Stephen King books lately. One called Under the Dome, which was a very well-structured book. I would call it a perfect book. It had the thing with the villain and the stuff and the tension and Mm -hmm. the things. And like, I could watch his, his beats go through that thing And why he did what he did, how he wove it. I'm like, perfect book. I'm also reading It. I just read it. (laughs) And It is a little bit older. Also Mm -hmm. a very well-structured book. But the prose in that book are so much better. Mm -hmm. So much better. And I'm not saying Under the Dome wasn't a good book. It was fine. It was great. And and it was satisfying, too. That was the thing. I'm Mm -hmm. like, emotionally satisfying as as an arc of the story. It was great. But there is a an artistry of language that he brings to it that is absent in the other book, even though it is a perfectly fine and good book. And I don't know, to your point about creativity and turn of phrase, will AI, the way that it works, ever come up with a a turn of phrase that makes you go zing? Maybe, I mean, it's always going to be cliche. And it might, to kind of to your point about things created accidentally, Sometimes things created accidentally are beautiful. And so I think it probably will come up with some incredible lines. Yeah. Like some staggeringly cool lines. I've I've seen that happen already, too, Mm -hmm. where you're like, oh, that's a a pretty good, beautiful oops. Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of go back to the question about kind of my feeling of existential dread as a writer versus an editor, I still think that actually... Editors are going to matter, but not probably as much copy editors Mm. or proofreaders. There's always going to be, I do think there's always going to be places for editing, but I do think that possibly editors as curators are going to be important in the sense of if there's so much content, the idea that, okay, is there still going to be 
some people who stand and sort through content and figure out what's working and what does feel emotionally resonant versus what doesn't. It's funny you, you put that on the editors and it's a really good place to put that. So I'm an independent author and I publish myself. And to be perfectly honest, publishing yourself is vastly easier than publishing through a big house publisher. The reason I know that is because at one point I like wrote, I don't know, five query letters and said, oh my God, this sucks. I don't want to do this. This is terrible. Now I could probably have ChatGPT do it and probably be a lot easier. But but, but the publisher's job isn't to print books, which mm-hmm. is what I always thought it was. It's to publicize your books, yep. which is to tell everyone that it exists mm-hmm. and to be a gatekeeper and, and to some degree decide what's worth it and what's not worth it. And getting through that gauntlet just wasn't interesting to me. But the benefit of doing that is I scrape and, and, and grovel for every reader that I ever get. And it's hard to get readers when you're mm-hmm. not going through a traditional publishing house. But I think it's a very similar thing where it's so easy to publish now that publishers are there to say, no, this is a book worth reading. And editors can be that too. And once AI makes it so I can write 10 books a year, and then you can publish it on Amazon for free, mm-hmm. like that's going to make it worse, not better. Gatekeepers become really interesting and important again. Yeah. And gatekeepers, it's it's a little bit of a, a scary word or an icky word because traditionally gatekeepers have kind of reinforced power. And that is always a danger. That's all, absolutely yeah, always a danger. And so then the question is, is if you're trying to make art that isn't derivative, if you're trying to get voices that have been underrepresented or haven't been heard, stories that haven't been created yet, then what you might need is gatekeepers who are actively looking for underrepresented voices or or not looking for, yeah. but maybe promoting. That would be... Again, the optimistic reading of gatekeeping is how do we promote something that we have seen? Change the game, yeah, right. And and which is funny, you know, as a cis white male, Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that I stopped querying publishers after a couple is because really, when I was reading it, and by the way, this is not a complaint. I don't care. It's great. I think it's wonderful. I was reading all the 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 query guidance for all these publishers, and it was like we we want. New voices. We want this. We want to, to to broaden our representation, which is fantastic and great. But it isn't me. I'm like mm-hmm. a cis white male who's like you know middle middle class, middle aged. Like it getting through that at this point. I'm like, nah. It's somebody else's turn. <laughs> I'm gonna go self publish through Amazon and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. But but to your point, the gatekeepers need to change the gates. Mm-hmm. But then the thing is like, okay. Are you are you a an underrepresented voice of any sort when the AI wrote it for you? Like, is underrepresented mean you use an off-brand AI? Like, what, what does that mean? <laughs> it's so, boy- so it has to be yeah. the stories themselves it has that to are be represented. The and, the, and the experiences. Yeah, yeah. That, because it the is... the experiences aren't real anymore, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, what, yeah, pe- what people, is experience? People who use their experiences to guide the AIs to write stories that other people hadn't guided AIs to write. Like, it just gets so weird so quick. I don't necessarily think all artists should go out and play with these things. There's a lot of hype around it, but the hype in this case is, is warranted. It is 
something like you've never seen. It feels magical. And it will literally change everything about the way we do everything. Yeah. And I wish I could tell you what book three of my series was about. It ain't real optimistic, to be perfectly frank, mm-hmm. because I'm writing it in this time, a post-Trumpian world with AI and everything. Like, I'm not real optimistic about life right now. Do you ever get the feeling like we're just making this up as we go along? Not the podcast, but everything. I mean, aren't we? We are literally doing it. But <laughs> I'm, I'm getting this weird sense of deja vu all the time as I'm seeing the world turn into systemic. And I'm like, holy shit, I thought of that. Not like a long time ago, but pretty recently. Mm-hmm. So my new book is all about organic-based computers. That's a lot of it. And I saw something, I think, yesterday where it's like, they made a computer chip out of wood. And I'm like, am I making this up as I go <laughs> along? Like, my buddy Titus and I were talking today about AI and, and reality and the simulation. And I'm like, so there's these large language model AIs. What if reality is actually a large reality model and it's just <laughs> auto-completing our realities? And we were never supposed to look so close at the atomic level, subatomic level, and we're never supposed to look quite as far as the, the the James Webb telescopes are looking. And so things are kind of starting to fray at the edges because mm-hmm. the large reality model doesn't know how to complete some <laughs> of these things. And so, so when I start to see these things echo and I'm like, things are getting so strange so fast that everything feels a little bit like an acid trip. Mm-hmm. A little bit. And I'm a, I consider myself to be a very sane person, and I'm starting to feel like I'm going crazy. Yeah. Everything is happening so fast, and it's such, you know, it used to be like, well, gosh, there weren't rockets, and then there were rockets, and then we're on the moon. It's like, that all seems to kind of logically flow. It's kind mm-hmm. of crazy. Yeah. But it's like, okay, we, we, we blew some people up into the sky, and they land on the moon. That's what you would expect to happen. Now things are, like, so weird. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I'm not old, old. I shouldn't be this rocked every day <laughs> of my life. I'm not that old. It does. I am getting deja vu to sitting around in Miss Tunnell's philosophy class in high school. You had Miss Tunnell too? Yes. I didn't know you had Miss Tunnell. Those Ms. classes Tunnell. were life changing. I love those classes. The so two classes good. we took. Philosophy, mm-hmm. ethics, mm-hmm. world religions from her. I took like, Christian themes on that. Yeah. Which was also amazing. And freaking fantastic. Yeah. Right? I want to point out Catholic school, everyone's like, oh, Catholic school, they wear, wear skirts and get hit with rulers. Catholic school is actually very challenging intellectually. It's not just hard. Like, they challenge some of your ideas. At least Miss Donnell did. We talked about Buddhism. I knew about the, the triumvirate of gods and Hinduism. Like, I learned all that in Catholic school, mm-hmm. like, which I thought was fantastic. And uh, yeah, she kind of rocked my world. And, you know, shout out to Miss Donnell. I think she's unfortunately passed us. Uh, she but. has, but she's, oh, she's she around. She's an ether. She is a big deal. She man. was so, force of nature, that woman. I know. Brilliant. Oh, my God. And I just remember, I just have this memory of sitting around in philosophy class and her saying, how do you know that anything behind you is real? Mm-hmm. Like you turn around, it's there, but how do you know? And we're all sitting there. I mean, it was to the point where all of us, I think we didn't hold hands, but I think we kind of wanted to hold hands you because, my mind. because it was like, 
is everything real? I can see behind you. You can see behind me. So is the only thing keeping us anchored is the fact we can see each other? I mean, we were all, we were going through it. Yeah, you're, you're going through <laughs> it. So the other thing I was obsessed about when I wrote Systemic was all this like mind stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, here's one thing that's really weird. You're actually always experiencing life like, you know, half a second behind reality just because your brain processes it. Mm-hmm. So how do you catch a baseball? Like, think about that one for a second. That's kind of weird. Like, you actually literally experience reality at a delay, mm-hmm. but you still manage to make it through reality. Like, it's all very strange stuff. Miss Danelle was one of the first times she did a, a, a Zen cone in class. <laughs> Me being a smart ass yeah. said something really that she thought was very deep, but it's just me being a smart yeah. ass. And I remember to this day, she said, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Mm-hmm. And I said, instantly, half as loud as two. <laughs> and she's like, oh, and I'm like, oh my God, did I say something deep or just dumb? And I couldn't tell. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, maybe that's the point of the cone to say yeah. something goofy. And so at that moment, I decided that my dad joke humor, mm-hmm. it's because I'm really deep. Oh, really? <laughs> that's fascinating. <laughs> It's really interesting that that's what you took away from Miss Tanel's class. I don't know if she ever, she she would just give me this look and then you would kind of like sit there and reassess your whole life. But she would say, you're no Chris Lodwig. Oh, she said all the time. All the time. Times she said that You're to related me. to who? Good <laughs> Lord. I guess my question is, is like, how do we keep going? How do we keep moving on? What's our, what's our job? Like, who are we, what are we supposed to be as humans now? Mm. What are we supposed to do? Well, here's a a slightly different question that I think is also pertinent is, do I use it or do I not? Like my my friend Titus again said the other day, how long has artificial intelligence been around? And I thought about it. I'm like, I don't know, since cuneiform, really. Like that's an artificial form of intelligence. And we've been kind of on this track ever since then. And if we don't use it, we will be obsolete. Like maybe. Or maybe not. Like, re- is resisting it the right thing to do? Is is figuring out how to leverage it? The first person who found that you use a paintbrush instead of a paint stick, was that good or bad? Like, I'm, I'm struggling with that. And then, like, mm-hmm. what do we do as humans? As humans, we will always do human things. Yeah. We will want to create. We might have to understand that our motivations for creating might be different. Like, I think that... For instance, I write, and I would love people to read my writing. Ultimately, I write because I enjoy writing. I'm not doing it to get rich. I'm not doing it to get famous. And I think that that might be a change. In a world where you write, where everybody can publish all the time, and you're not getting book deals, and you're just getting paid per bit that gets out there, like you can't be an independent writer and write for money or for fame. That can't be why you do it. And so maybe the thing is you embrace the world around you. And if you're a creative person, you create with the tools provided for you. And you allow your reason for doing it to change. Maybe that's all. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what we do. What do you think? I just... So I don't have an answer, but I have some thoughts. The first thing that I was thinking as you were talking... I don't think that was an answer on my part. It was just a thought. It was a thought. I don't have answers. I'm not just, a Chris Lodwick. <laughs> I'm just a Shoyer. Just because I use expert voice does not mean I'm an expert. <laughs> I have a very deep, loud voice. I don't know what I'm talking about. I promise. Uh, Anyways, what would you do? This Sorry. is my thought. I there I have some a constellation of thoughts that are not even <laughs> approaching an answer. I think as you were talking, I was just thinking, I wonder if some 
of what art will look like will actually look like like some of the art that I would say we're nostalgic for. Like, I wonder if it'll look like sitting around a campfire and reading something that you've written to friends. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there will be an intimacy to it because that will be the way that you transmit what you've created. To people who literally give a shit about you. Exactly. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about marketing myself and how to do it. And what I came down to is the only way I think I can market myself as a writer at this point is to let my friends know that I've written Mm -hmm. and or to let people that might want to read me like me as a person and want to have something to do with me. Full stop. And so I think you're right. And you, did you read Marshall McLuhan when you were in college and media theorist? I I read a lot of Marshall Mm -hmm. McLuhan, or at least he was very impactful on my thinking. He was always talking about as a, as a technology changes, it brings back some dimension of something that's gone away. Right. You lose something and you gain something. Elevators make you lose the sensation of height because like you don't walk up and downstairs. It's, but you, you lose a dimension of time because you have to stand still. So you trade off time for a dimension of height. And that's what the elevator did. It took one thing away and added something mm. else or, or brought something else back. And and so it is very possible that writing a book is a way of communicating an idea only to your friends. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And it becomes so easy to communicate that idea to your friends that you can do one a day. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, and maybe at some point it just devolves into conversation. I just don't know. Or maybe we have new rituals around it, like creative rituals. I think we and have sharing. To. Yeah. And yeah, it, even even to publishing today and how I experience publishing is so personal. I'm not going to surprise anybody by saying I don't sell a lot of books. I sell so few books. I go through periods like when I first release a book, it's like it's noisy because so many people buy a book. But after a while, like right now, I'm only selling one or two books sometimes a day or whatever. And I can see individual people reading my Kindle Mm -hmm. unlimited. So I'm like, oh, somebody's reading it. And then some days I'm like, is that five people reading 20 pages or whatever? But I'm like, oh, look, sometimes I'll say, oh, I started reading your book. And I'm like, yeah, I see you in the data. Mm -hmm. And that's really a very interesting and personal thing. Mm -hmm. That's kind of fascinating and a little bit obsessive, but it's neat. And it's like to the point where sometimes if I'm selling too many books and I can't see that, it kind of makes me a little bit sad. Yeah. Like, because I like to see that somebody's tracing through my book and I Mm want to be able to reach out and say, how's it going? Yeah. Where are you? And I always, people always, when they're reading my book, like, oh, I'm reading your book. I'm like, where are you? Yeah. Oh, do you, are you on that scene? Oh, I really like that scene. I, yeah. You were with me the other day. We were down jogging and we were done. We we're stretching. And my neighbor, Shelly, walked up to us at the lake and I gave her a big hug. And she said she was reading my book. I introduced you. and But I was like, where are you? Mm-hmm. Where are you in the book? Yeah. But it's so fun. And she was texting me the other day. She actually gets a call out in my book. Her partner, who unfortunately died, and my other neighbor, Byron. So I have Shelly and Byron. That's weird. That's lovely. Love Funny. It. But Shelly, and so I, in one of my scenes, I say Shelly and Carol. Like a little heart on the wall, and there's Byron and Susan <gasps> on the wall. Those oh, are my two I neighbors. I remember that. I didn't re- Those are my two oh, neighbors my goodness, whose spouses, I love that. Whose spouses oh. have died. That was my call out to those two. Oh, I love that. So she's already gone past. She texted me. She's like, I saw the Easter egg. Oh. And I'm like, oh. And so there is something that's very, very 
fun and personal about writing. A lot of the names in my latest book were named after people that I know and love and things like that. So I love that. Yeah, I think it is really interesting because the, the book that I am still struggling to write, speaking of the struggle, I think one of the questions I got obsessed with, because it's actually a book about AI, so it might be completely obsolete by the time I actually finish it. Isn't that scary? It's very scary. That's hard. It's hard to think about. But one of the questions that I think is really interesting is my main character is, is watched a lot. And she's watched by impersonal people. She's watched by people, some people who are trying to control her. But she's also watched by some people that she loves and she cares about. And she can't separate out which person is which all of the time. And that to her is very scary. And so it's, but it's that question of like, it feels so different to be watched by or seen by somebody you trust and care about, Mm -hmm. even if it's via data or via feed, than it is to be watched by somebody who's either you don't understand who or who's trying to control you. And that it gets so squishy. <laughs> like surveillance gets so squishy. I was just thinking about it. This is not really related to the conversation, but I was thinking about <laughs> no, that. No, what you said is I'm a creep because I look at people that are reading no, my book. No, I think what I, <laughs> no, what, what I was thinking about, and this is why my book got more complicated. At the beginning, it was about this very kind of straightforward, fairly abusive dynamic. And then as I kept writing, I was like, oh, we're all watching each other all the time. And it's not that I think we're all creeps. It's that I think that question of how to be a good person and to be a person who has that connection with other people and also have that data available and have, you know, because sometimes we watch people like I have my sisters on a map. And when I go on runs, when my husband's out of town, I say, hey, can you watch me on this map make and make sure, sure that I'm that I make it home? And so I think just watching and being perceived and what we do with data and what we do with information is a really complicated question. And I think it's going to become a question of like how to be a good human. We live in interesting times, and I'm very conscious of the fact that I sound like an old person. But I think it's because reality is changing so fast around me that it mm-hmm. makes us all old people. Absolutely. You know, it's been said a couple times that if you take someone from a thousand years ago and bring them to you know 300 years ago, they're gonna get it. Mm-hmm. The clothes are different and weird and whatever. There's some different stuff, but ultimately, it's like people do the same things. My job didn't exist when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. If I'd walked into a bar in 1984 and said I was surfing porn on my phone, mm-hmm. people would just you're surfing Those porn were, on, on a phone. Like yeah. what is it? It doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Like, like those words just didn't collapse into each other in any way that was meaningful. I hope you're not doing that in bars now either, like actually. searching porn on phones? Yeah, I mean, in the bar. I, I don't no, know. I don't do that. <laughs> oh, I had a weird, one of my first moments of craziness. It had nothing to do with porn. I was in a bar waiting for my parents to get off of the light rail. I was down in downtown Seattle, and I was there, and I had to drink a beer because I was waiting for my parents. And this guy from Eritrea was there. This is a long time ago. And I was talking. I pulled out my phone to do something. He's like, oh, I've never seen as an iPhone. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've never seen this thing. And what is this? And I showed him, like, Google Maps on the iPhone. I was like, where are you from? And he's like, Eritrea. Mm-hmm. And he's like, go to this place and zoomed in. Oh. And his mind just 
blue. He's like, oh my god, that's my mosque. That was the mosque I went to when that's, I was a yeah. kid. And it was this, and it was like a watershed moment in like weirdness of life, where it's like this guy saw the mosque that he attended his whole life on my phone at a bar, and it just blew his mind. Yeah, and that was ten years ago. <laughs> I'm gonna re-recommend a book that I think I've recommended before, which is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's a book about creative collaboration, and it's a book about how hard it is and how heartbreaking it can be. Because it's about two collaborators who kind of keep missing each other. But that it's, I don't know. I think it would be a really interesting book to read right now and Mm. to think about why we create things. Because it's a book about people who are driven to create and whose drive both elevates their life and sometimes almost ruins it. And I don't know. I feel like it's nostalgic in all the best ways in that way. Because like it asks nostalgic us, for like three weeks ago. Exactly. <laughs> you yeah. know, way. Well, it's talking about kind of the origins of some of of video game creation. And so I feel like it has a nostalgic factor, but not in a kitschy way. Like I think it's like asking about, okay, why do we make things the way that we do? Mm. And it it's a it is a very deeply emotional book. A deeply emotionally resonant book. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. And by Gabrielle Zevin. The book that you definitely should not read is Life 3.0. It's a really interesting book. A little bit terrifying. I'll reread Misery since we talked about Stephen King. Misery's great. And thinking about books that are like, that the voice is just so strange. I I don't know if an AI could write Misery. Maybe. I mean, an AI who knew Stephen King, but if you didn't know Stephen King first... Well, I could I could have ChatGPT write something in... The I did style, have but it's because it already exists. Yeah, I know. I know. It's true. It's true. That's what I mean. Your job yeah. as, a, as an artist is to feed the AIs stuff yeah. to, to do. I, I, had, I tried to write something in the style of... In the style of me. Mm. That was interesting. It didn't do a very good job, but I don't think that knows who I am, really. It faked it. It's like a... ChatGPT is like a guy at a party that you're like, hey, yeah. buddy. And they're like, hey, you. Yeah. I know you. Like, Did ChatGPT start nagging you? Yeah, no. Chat, <laughs> it's chat, like, I bet you'll come home with me if I tell you this. Yeah, no, chat, no, no. ChatGPT doesn't do that to me. It's more like it just <laughs> pretends that it knows me. And yeah. it's like, does, does some like, yeah. And then it introduced me to its friend, Bard. It's like, hey, have you met Bard? And then it runs away. Mm-hmm. Like, it did that. So. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, Anyways. all right. I got nothing else, so no. I'm going to call it. I'm going to put a fork in it, Christy. We're going to do it. Sounds good. Again. I didn't think we had anything to talk about, but oh, here we are again. Oh no! If you when you said we were going to be talking about AI <laughs> and, and literature, and I'm like, I know this I, is going to be a long one. I actually knew that too. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to call it. Cheers. You've been listening to the No I in Writing podcast. I'm Chris. I'm Christy. And for better or for worse, you should crack open a large language model AI and ask it to do some things for you and see how excited and or scared you become. And then I would say maybe as a little refresher after that, like, go for a walk. <laughs> like, dig in the soil a little bit. Play you know? with worms. Play with worms are really, really important. Decomposers. Yeah. Remember that things can decompose yeah. and be made new again. Make some sourdough. Just, you know... Do some things. Make some. Make imperfect things by hand. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. Good night.